Welcome to the Vocation of the Common Good podcast. I'm your host, Philip Lorish. Today my guest is Max Anderson, a founding partner of Saturn V, a startup studio based in Denver, Colorado and Austin, Texas. Before founding Saturn V, Max worked in a variety of capacities at McKinsey, Google, The Charlie Rose Show, Bridgewater Capital, and Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Max publishes The Weekend Reader, a curated weekly newsletter with five articles he recommends on any given topic. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My God, my God, where I go, glory, where I reap and where I sow. Max, I think that your sort of vocational life is a... It's a curiosity. It's a curiosity. <laughs> what is Saturn V and what do you do, Max? <laughs> Saturn V, our company is what you would call a startup studio, which is a phrase that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Sometimes it's called a venture builder. It's a new model for creating new companies. You can think about a venture capital fund. And what a venture capital fund does is they go raise a bunch of money and then entrepreneurs come and pitch the VC saying, invest in our business. And they'll invest in 20 different businesses. And most of them will fail, but two of them will be huge successes is the way they hope it works. And the portfolio overall will do well based on how well those breakout successes are. A startup studio, you can think of more like a movie studio. You have producers whose job it is to pull together the script, the director, the talent, and the capital to make the movie. Sometimes the idea for the movie comes from the producer. Sometimes it'll come from the director, sometimes from a screenwriter. But the producer's job is to pull it all together and make it happen. We are producers for startups where we are getting investment money. We're getting the director is like the CEO. The script is the business plan. And... We're putting it all together into a coherent whole and saying, let's launch this project into the world. So this is kind of a new model of starting businesses. And the idea is that you can take a lot of the randomness out of doing a startup where, you know, instead of a 22-year-old kid in his dorm room randomly having an idea and then randomly getting his roommate to be his co-founder and then there's a lot of money floating around so they get funded for some reason and then... They find out 18 months later they don't know how to run a company or it's not that good an idea. Take that away and say, no, let's take a very well-honed business thesis. Let's go recruit a growth executive who has been there, done that before. Let's go get an anchor customer who we're already going to have immediate sales to on day one. So we're not trying to figure out a way to make money you know, three years into the thing. And let's significantly de-risk the process of starting a new business. I got into it because I love it as a mix between investing and operating and for the ability to be creative about, you know, if you're a VC investor, you are reliant on entrepreneurs coming to you with their ideas. We have a little bit more flexibility to say, hey, this is a problem that we care about. Let's go start a business in that space to address that problem and go find a like-minded person to work alongside with us in it. So I was at an event once where you said that the church may have a particular role in basically sustaining certain practices like reading that we needed to sustain 
essentially at this moment you were saying we have a kind of competitive advantage if we can continue to be people whose attention is not flitting about left, right, and center, but are capable of attending to words and ideas and arguments that may cost us something. And you made this clarion call for people to be better readers. Yeah. And I afterwards came up and hugged you and kissed you on the cheek. And I said, it completely validated my existence. Yeah. So tell me about your reading habits and what you think the importance of reading is right now. I mean, if anything, my thoughts on the importance of reading, it just increased with the election. And, you know, all the fake news and now Facebook's saying actually there were 3,000 ads that were fake that Russian operatives put and then were syndicated all around. Did you see that NPR April Fool's Day stunt they did like a year ago? Yep. Where they basically had a headline that said 80% of people only read headlines. And then they put in the rest of the article that this wasn't true. But they wanted to see if actually this was actually true. And so people would like read the headline of that and then retweet it and say, this is terrible or whatever. But they say, if you come to the end of this article, you'll see this is just an April Fool's joke. They were poking fun at it, but it actually turned out to be like pretty indicative of reality. I wrote this post like a couple of years ago that people should only read long articles and books because I think that the type of thought that you're capable of having and accessing is eroding generally in culture. And I think it does something to the way we know things and also the way we know each other. When do you read? Let's go full Paris Review interview moment. Take me to your study, Max. (laughs) So I have a system for reading articles. I subscribe to about 25 different sources that will send me an email once a day or once a week that are either directly from publications or other aggregations uh, from publications. And then I will cruise through those headlines and ones that interest me, I will clip to Evernote and I will tag them by category and I'll give all them all the tag read later. Then I will have them queued up on my phone so that instead of my first instinct when I pull out my phone being to check my email, I have the alternative option of pulling up an article that I've already said that I wanted to read. So again, this is my own, I default to the easiest thing. And the easiest thing in the moment is to just do email because it's right there. So if I make reading something good that I intend to read just as easy, then I can do that as opposed to just reading whatever comes up randomly. So my reading is in two phases. One is like, what is the topic? And, And filtering it, yes, no, yes, no. Am I interested in this? And then for those things that I am interested in, putting them in a queue to batch process them later. So then I can go through and like waiting for this interview, go through two or three articles and then they're priests like that like. And so that's what I tend to do. I fill up a lot of spare moments that way. You don't have set reading times during the day? I don't have set reading times during the day. At night, I will read at night, but that's usually a book. So I read a book in bed and then I read articles when I'm vertical. I was talking to my wife last week and we were talking about my sister and my sister had gotten a new job and my wife did not know that, but she and my sister had been texting back and forth during the whole time that she was applying and doing it, but it just didn't come up. And I was like, how interesting. They were in touch 
but she didn't know like this massive like change in, in her life. It struck me that, you know, when you had to write a letter and put it in the mail and it was a hassle. So you wrote a long letter and you talked about your whole life and then we got email. And at first when you didn't get a lot of email, you used to write personal emails. I don't know if you remember those days. I but do. Like, you would say, oh, here's what's going on with me. And you'd have a proper correspondence with someone that kind of mirrored what letter writing was like. And then, of course, we got way too much email. So that stopped. I don't do any personal emails, basically. It's kind of coordinating. And then we've reduced that now to social media posts and texts and then now emojis. And I think that our tendency is to default to the easiest thing. And the easiest thing is to write 140 characters or to write a quick text. Harder to have a phone call, harder to sit down and write a letter. So we just tend not to do that. But we lose quite a bit of context. It's like when you sample, I'm, I, I'm gonna, here we go, I'm going to say things I don't know about, but I'm not afraid of doing that. Right. Like music, audiophiles I know who like swear about LPs and like vinyl, like, and that's the real sound versus it being compressed and condensed to, you know, a few bits, you know, when you're streaming it. It feels that way just like with all of our communication with each other. Like we've just compressed it all so much and we're losing a lot of the richness and texture and background that should be a part of what it means to know each other and to know something. And so it's not just relationships. Take that and then say, okay, well, anything you want to know anything about, you can read a book about it. You can read a long article about it. You can read a tweet about it. And you will know different levels of depth about that subject as a result. My own communication is compressed. I would love to be a man of letters who is in touch with people in a robust way. But I'm in touch with a lot of people. And we're all in touch with a lot of people, Mm -hmm. a lot more than anybody else was in the past because technology enables it. And so my relationships are probably less deep and more broad than anyone in my family in any generation previous to this. And probably any one of us could say that. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily cutting so much against the grain in my own practice that way. So I feel more like a guy who is looking around for a life preserver than the one who's in the red shorts jumping from his chair to help the drowning man himself. Do you still write letters? (laughs) That is a good question. I write a Christmas letter every year that I spend a lot of time on. So most people that I get Christmas greetings from, I get a a photo. And we try to include a photo in ours, too. My dad always wrote a long Christmas letter. and It was a a real update on the family and and whatnot. So I've I've tried to do that and make it kind of a, a reflective thing. Other than that, I will try... I make it a priority of writing real cards to family on their birthday with like a real note, which my wife doesn't really do that. And so that's a constant, like I'm telling, please write me a long note because that's how I feel loved. So Jess, if you're listening, (laughs) this is a cry for help. I 
I think you're onto something here. I'm thinking about my grandparents who, you know, classic sort of wartime story. My grandfather proposed to my grandmother on the way to San Diego. He had known her for two weeks. They had a couple weeks together before he shipped off. During those two weeks, my dad was conceived. And then my grandfather didn't come back for three and a half years. But there are these letters where you see my grandmother say, I don't know when you're going to get this, but I'm pregnant. We need to name this baby. Comes back from my grandfather. You know, so my dad is not a junior, but he carries his father's first name. And there's all this debate about the merits of that. My grandmother's asking these questions about why I don't know anything about your family. I'm married to you, pregnant with your child, and you're in a war, and we're trying to decide what to name a kid. And the certain type of trust that was built through their highly personal, highly intimate, but very distant form of communication and irregular, that set something in place about being connected to people, but then also giving a certain type of space. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think contemporary communication technologies rob from us is a sense that we can trust people that we're not in touch with immediately all the time. It creates this idea that if you're not communicating with someone, something is wrong or something is suspicious or we could potentially, you know, this relationship may have gone sideways. And it feels like long form forms of communication or something like letter writing, it honors a distance that creates a possibility for trust. I mean, if you think about what conversations are you having with your wife, let's just think verbally you know, you're seeing each other during the day, but you got the kids and you're running back and forth. Like it's clipped, it's quick. It's kind of like superficial. If you don't take time out and have a dinner together and a date or whatever, you can lose track of each other, even if you're living in the same house. And I think a letter enables you to do something even that a long personal conversation does not, which is right here, we're on the fly. Like some of our thoughts are probably interesting because they're fresh and new. Some of them are probably not that good because we haven't really considered it. But a letter forces you to make a certain sense of your thoughts, I feel like. You know, I think about Amazon, the most successful company in the world maybe right now. And they have an interesting practice. They will not do a meeting without the guy or gal who organized the meeting writing a memo that everyone in the meeting sits and reads at the at the start of the meeting. But the force of that is that you're not wasting any time doing anything that someone hasn't thought through. Here's why we're getting together. Here's all the context you need. And here's the decision I want to tee up. And then they sit there and they all read in silence together to get up to speed as opposed to people coming in with different levels of context. And I actually think that's a pretty interesting throwback way to employ the discipline of a thought that comes through writing and through reading to run a very fast moving tech forward company. It forces us to reckon with how cheap words are in other forms of interaction. You have to think through what do I actually want to say, distill the thought down, into the most concentrated form right. and convey that. Part of what goes on with most of our communication right now is that it costs us nothing. And so it's easy just to reach out to somebody hoping that they'll text you back. The words don't matter, it's something else. Yeah. And so words are cheapened in a way that like with my grandparents in that scenario, they couldn't be. And I do think we have lost something. We live in a world where we're all reading and writing way more than previous generations and yet seem to be less and less proficient. We know less about more. 
Do you think that we can unring that bell? I mean, does it feel like the shortening of attention means that communication is just going to be reduced down to the barest form? I don't know. It's a, I don't know. It is interesting that this week Twitter is experimenting with doubling to 280 characters. Why are they doing that? I don't know. I, they, they found that 9% of tweets are exactly 140 characters, huh. which I think they figured, okay, that means that probably people wanted to write more but couldn't. I think the average tweet is only like 36 characters. I don't know. I think we are, I believe, at the beginning of a backlash against things that, you know, uh, of being isolated from each other and also having just surface level, superficial understanding of things. I think people are starting, you know, there's a more widespread agreement about that, that that's an issue, that's a problem. What will be interesting is like, you know, it's like knowing you're overweight and then deciding to go on a diet or two different things. Right. So... The market will speak. A friend recently was telling me that he thought that the monasteries of the 21st century are going to be essentially these amplified digital detox enterprises where it's, you know, silence and a lack of virtual connectivity are going to be attractive and desirable for folks looking for new ways of living and also potentially lucrative. Like we'll pay money to go somewhere I to buy get that. away from our stuff. I buy that. I also think it will be a sign of status and wealth to be unreachable, to be off the grid. Otherwise, you are the driver who gets raided. You are the person who's on call and needs to answer your text or whatever. So I don't know that that will be evenly distributed, but I can totally see that as a perk for the upper crust. Did you ever read Moonwalking with Einstein? No. Great book. It's about memory. And But one of the points he talks about is, you know, throughout most of human history, people didn't have books. Right. And so the education was memorization. Even into the, you know, last couple hundred years, if you had books, you had a couple books. You had the Bible, you might have a couple others. So you would just read and reread the same thing over and over again. And the process of that is one where you read then what people wrote who had that kind of education and was very rich and the illusions and metaphors they used were very complicated and in-depth. And not only do we individually struggle to do that today because we don't read and reread, or we tend not to, but we can't be sure that anyone else has read the same things that we've read. Right. So there's less common ground unless it's, you know, a Netflix binge that we can all relate to. May the words we speak You don't think that technology as such is irredeemable. I think of you as someone who is committed to trying to figure out kind of hacks for our best selves. <laughs> is that right? Is that the goal? Yeah, I think that technology is neither good nor bad. It's just a force multiplier, which you could say is ultimately good because it allows us to do more. But how we use it is oftentimes we're just reactive, we're not thoughtful about it. 
And I think that leads to all sorts of second and third order consequences that we're really not comfortable with, but that we don't think about at the time. And so we all like to check in on Facebook or we all like to have a screen in our pocket. And then the longer term effect of that is we spend more time in front of a screen, less time relating with each other. And we have record levels of loneliness and depression and anxiety And it's hard for us to draw the conclusion, the result from the action itself. We don't see the link so causally, so clearly, just by its nature. It doesn't happen automatically. And so I think we get caught up in the excitement of what's possible and then find ourselves regretful about where we've ended up. And so I love technology. I'm kind of a geek I love to learn about the new things, try different apps. I think that there's a gap in how we are forming ourselves and how we're educating our kids and how we're just developing our practices where the technology is moving so quick, the ways that we're interacting are changing very dramatically, and we're just kind of going with the flow. And I'm not convinced that the net result is ultimately the world we want to build. Yes, I like the idea of us getting better. Yes, I like, you know, can we, how can we hack our way through to like getting more done and be less stressed? But that's partly because there's a need for that just because there's more for us to do because we've created this world in which we can always be reached. And I guess I feel I have a melancholiness about technology. But you also run a startup studio. This is really important because it seems to me that there's one approach that is the sort of nostalgic yeah. rejection of we're not going to innovate our way out of this because innovation is what got us to be sort of highly educated sheep. And so there's one response, which is I'm not going to try to innovate my way out of this. There's another response I mean, it seems to me that Saturn V as an entity is saying we could have a more creative and less reactive response that tries to determine as best as we can what we actually want our tools to do for us and then build towards that. I think the arc of history is always going to be towards innovation and growth and development. I think we have built into us a desire to learn and grow. That's like an unstoppable force. So the idea of just trying to put the genie back in the bottle doesn't work in the sense of, hey, let's just, let's all toss our phones in the can. But there is a kind of innovation that says, well, what are ways to keep the genie on our side? What questions are we asking? What problems are we seeing? It's like a way of viewing the world. And so people are going to be developing technologies. They're going to be solving problems. The questions are, what problems are they focused on? And then therefore, what technologies are they developing in response? The common critique of Silicon Valley, which I think is totally fair, is like the problems that people seem to be focused on a lot are how do we make life as easy and comfortable as possible for upper middle class people in the United States, as opposed to many other problems that we could be focusing on. So I think that's the thing. It's really like stepping back for us and saying, Look, technology is like, there's wonderful things about it too, for as much as I'm saying like, oh, it's, it's hurting the way that we're learning and communicating. Like, wow, I have access to an incredibly greater amount of information than my grandparents did. I love being in touch with you across the country and friends around the world in ways that it was just not possible for my parents. But then there's problems with that. And so let's create businesses and new technologies that help us 
deal with that reality and not just ignore it. I mean, it seems to fit who you are. Is it also the case that this is a new sort of market opportunity? Like, do you anticipate that more and more startup studios will be emerging going forward? I do. There's well over 100 around the world now. You know, there's companies you've heard of who've gotten started from studios. So Dollar Shave Club, Fandango, companies like this were started by studios. It's still pretty new, though. So we'll see. But I think my prediction is that the next 10 years will be about the studio as a way to start businesses. What do you think we as a society should be paying more attention to that we're not? A lot of our conversation so far has been about the Mm -hmm. dynamics of attention. So what should we be paying attention to that we're not at this point? And then secondly, what in particular do you wish the church was paying attention to that it seems to be incapable of paying sustained attention to? In some ways, I feel like we're paying attention to everything, and that's the problem. I feel like there's things we shouldn't be paying attention to. One that comes to mind as something that probably is not getting as much attention as I think it should. You've kind of heard it underneath my comments a lot is loneliness. You know, we're having an epidemic of loneliness in this country and around the world. And it's related to people living far away from their families, moving because of jobs away from their friends, not being rooted in churches or in other civic groups, spending more time online instead of spending time in real life. And the research is there that this is bad for your health. You will live a shorter life. It's especially bad for men. It's like, well, how do you solve the problem of loneliness? Like, that's not an easy technical fix. So I think there's maybe a reason why we just don't know what to do with it. There's a lot of underlying root causes there. And it's not like a simple app to take care of that. It's hard to admit to as well. It's hard to admit to. But I, gosh, I read something that it's almost hard to fathom, but like, I think it was 25% of men said they had no close friends at all. That's unbelievable to me. But on the other hand, I get it. So I think that is something we're not paying as much attention to as a culture. Another thing I think is we really need to rethink how education is done. I think a lot of what is important to living a good life is actually not taught in our current educational regime, either primary, secondary, college level. I think for most people, very practical things, and I say even elites as well as non-elites, are just left out of the curriculum. So I think people, everyone ought to learn how to manage their email. I think everyone ought to learn what it takes to have a good marriage. I think everyone ought to learn how to stand up and give a speech. Everyone should learn about their diet, what makes you overweight or whatnot, in a way that is far more practical than I think what education is today. I'm guessing that people are going to fill the gaps on that. They already are with blogs and and whatnot, but someone is going to create like the model and maybe it's one of these, you know, new MOOCs that someone will do and they'll find a way but like a life seminar it's like a university for real life yeah
the church, I think, ought to be more vocal and thoughtful at the same time about exponential technological growth and its impacts on us in terms of our ideas of what it means to be human and how we relate to each other in society. So I think we are beginning to see and will continue to see big, big, big changes related to genetics, related to the development of artificial intelligence that will prompt new questions that are really old questions that are in a new context about what does it mean to be human? What is consciousness? What are rights and who has them? I look constantly for good leadership and writing and thinking in these things. And I'm always like saddened by how little I see of it. I think we're going to wake up and we're going to be like, what, what just happened? What world are we living in right now? The thoughts about philosophy and ethics and theology are long, slow thoughts that require reading books and long walks in the park to consider. And meanwhile, the technology is something that is like a bullet train coming at us. So we're mismatched on a time scale. It feels like the tyranny of the urgent thesis is true. We just are way more attentive to things that feel immediate, and yet the sort of tectonic shifts in society continue slowly until there's a break, at which point we have a new reality that we haven't necessarily prepared ourselves for. There's no time like the present to begin thinking and reading. Vocation in the Common Good is a production of New City Commons and the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper and Philip Lorish. It was edited by T.J. Hester, and it was mixed by Mark Owens. Rain, it pours and beats the